If you have your Bibles with you, if you could open up to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. And now that you've gone ahead and taken your seat, would you stand back up again? I'm sorry. I'm going to get better at this, I promise. I'm sorry. Would you stand and quit grumbling and complaining like the Old Testament? We're going to read the first five verses. That's our text for the sermon today. And uh, let's read, I'm going to read and you can follow along in your translation in your Bible. And I hope you have your Bibles in front of you. Maybe you've got your uh, your iPad or your, uh, your phone, but uh, let's open up Nehemiah chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So Nehemiah chapter 9. Verse 2, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood eight men. Exactly. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites and eight other men, and some of them in the same list, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Let's go ahead and have a seat. If you're looking at the title, in fact, it's behind us. On your notes or up here, hearts made ready to pray. How do we get our hearts ready to pray? I'm not sure if a lot of us have ever heard a sermon, how to get ready to pray. How do you prepare your heart to pray? That's what we're going to learn this morning. You know, D.L. Moody once asked a certain brother to get up and pray at a service, and the man began to pray. Now, you got to appreciate this from a pastoral perspective, because I've experienced this. The man began to pray, and he was still praying, still droning on after ten minutes. Finally, and Moody was pretty bombastic, he was pretty brazen. Moody stood up while he was praying and said these words to his congregation. While our dear brother is finishing his prayer, let's turn to number 342 and sing it together. I say that because the prayer in chapter 9 of Nehemiah is the longest prayer in the entire Old Testament. It's a long prayer. And we're going to work through it in this sermon series. And I don't think it's going to take really a long time to work through it. Because I think we can make it through it fairly quickly. But there's a lot of truths that we're going to pull out. There's a lot of uh, instruction of how to pray. But what we've just read together, the first five verses. That occurs before the prayer begins. So how do you prepare your hearts to pray to God? How do you prepare yourself to meet with God? Because it's important. It's important that we just don't blunder into God's presence. You don't, you know, one of the rules in our family and parents, I don't know if you have it, we've tried to teach our children, just knock before you open the door. You know, you might be changing. I'll stop there with hypotheticals. Just knock before you open the door. It's very difficult for kids to learn that. 
Well, listen, how do you knock on your heart before you open the door into God's mercy, his throne room? And it's important that we do that. And that's what we're going to learn this morning. We've seen in the last few weeks that you've got to approach God's word in particular ways. We've got to learn to be disciplines of God's word. When you open the Bible during the week, you open the Bible with eagerness. You're about to hear from the mind of God. God's going to speak to you. The word of God is living and it's active. So there's eagerness when you approach the word of God. And then there's expectation. He is going to speak. He will always speak. You'll never not hear God speak if you're coming to God in faith when you open the word of God. He's going to speak. That doesn't mean you're going to hear it all the time, but he's going to speak. And we're learning the disciplines. How do you hear from God? So you approach it eagerly. You approach it expectantly. You esteem the third E. You esteem and value the Bible above all philosophies, above all books, above all uh, forms of teaching and instruction. And when you do that, when you eagerly come expecting God to speak, valuing it higher than anybody else or anything else, he's going to lead you to exalt him. And that's the aim of the Bible. Listen, the aim of the Bible is not information. The aim of the Bible is not itself. The aim of the Bible is to go through the Bible to Jesus Christ, to exalt, to know God and make him known. And and when we do that, when we exalt him, he's going to explain his word to us. He might explain his word through the spirit of God privately to you, or he might send somebody to you that has the gift of teaching. They could say, listen, here's what that means. He sent Paul to somebody on the Damascus, or not Damascus Road, but he sent Paul to people to explain the word of God. He sent Peter to Cornelius. God sends people to us, whether it's a book, whether it's a sermon, whether it's a friend, whether it's a pastor, an elder, or a leader, a teacher in the church. He will explain his word, and that's a promise. But when you do that, when you come eagerly expecting and esteeming and exalting and and he's explaining it, it's going to do something transformational. The word of God is not static. It's dynamic, it's fluid, it's powerful. And it's going to cut, it's going to create grief. He's going to put you on the operating table and he's going to take the scalpel of his word of God and he's going to dig sometimes deeply and it's going to hurt. But whenever he does surgery, he's already got the the anesthesia of grace flowing through your veins. Listen, God will never cut you with his word unless he's going to bear you up with his grace. Listen, that's a promise. We're going to see today there might be a tendency to avoid the word of God because you want to avoid the surgery. But God promises, I've got grace. And if you humble yourself, you come to my word, I'm going to dig. I'm going to dig only deep enough to get out of your heart what needs to be gotten out. But I'm going to bring grace to bear. And when he does that, when he does that surgery, he's going to do a work in our hearts so that we love and give of our lives both to him in service and to other people in love. And it's going to end in the third G that we've seen, and that is great, great gladness. He's going to do surgery, but the, the result of that surgery is the cancer's out, the disease is out, and you've got joy. I'm disease-free. I can walk with the Lord in that joy. That's the power of the Word of God. That's what we've been seeing. But what we're going to see today is that one of the most powerful functions of the Word of God is to prepare us to pray to our God. God, we're going to see, speaks to us through His Word. It's going to prepare us to be able to speak to Him through prayer. What are we going to learn? I'm going to bring five points out this morning. I think 
I'm leaving a lot on the field here. There's a ton more that I don't have time to bring out. So please be students of the word. This week, go back to verses 1 through 5 and study these things for yourselves. You're going to learn more than what I'm going to bring you this morning. Number one, our hearts need to be humble before the Lord. Let's read it. Verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Now we know fasting, but none of us probably have gotten in sackcloth and none of us put dirt on our heads as a form of worship. So let's extract this. Let's find out what it means for us. Now remember, it's the 24th day of the month. It's the month Tishri. Now remember the month Tishri is... The kickoff of the fall festivals of, of Israel. You've got the first day of the month. That's the feast of the trumpets. That's when the shofar blows and it brings you into an attitude of repentance, getting ready for the tenth day of the month. That's the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. That's when they sacrifice the goats and one goat sacrifice and the other one is sent out into the wilderness. And then you've got the fifteenth of the month, the festival of tabernacles. You saw it with a Sukkot last week. Um, the booth with Bob and Emily Seymour. So you've got the 15th. And by the way, the Feast of Tabernacles goes eight days. And the whole aim of the Feast of Tabernacles is to create joy. It's to create rejoicing. It's that we would love to be in the presence of our God. That we would love our God and being His people. That we would rejoice from it. So the aim is joy. That ends on the 22nd. You got the 24th, which is our text today. They come back before the Lord. They come back in an assembly. But this time they're coming back and they're dressed in sackcloth. They're fasting and they've got dirt and earth on their heads. Now I want you to do something for me because I want to teach you the Hebrew meaning of the word fasting. I want you to take your hand, left or right. I don't really care, but let's, let's do it together. Take your hand. And cover your mouth with it. That's exactly what the word fasting means. It means to cover your mouth. Now you know what the word fasting means. It means cover your mouth. You restrict your diet. It means you lay aside food in some form. Sometimes they laid aside food completely. Sometimes, Paul did this in Acts, you lay aside food and water for three days. And sometimes, like Daniel, you'll lay aside the choice foods and the wine so that you restrict your diet. You drink water, you drink vegetables, you drink, you eat vegetables. You can drink them nowadays. You eat vegetables and you restrict your diet. There's three forms of fasting and that's the three forms in the Bible. But it's to restrict, it's to lay aside, it's to do something to inhibit the food that normally goes into your body. Now listen, here's why. Now let's pay attention to this because a lot of us We don't fast. We probably should. Some of us, if you are fasting, it's purely for reducing. (laughs) That's not fasting. A spiritual fast does this. You ready? You're fasting and you get hunger pangs. And when those hunger pangs come, they move you in a spiritual fast to the pain that your soul experiences when it hungers for the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ. You see, spiritual fasting is to produce an outward physical uh, response that moves you to create an inward spiritual response. Fasting is to produce a love and a drive and a movement toward God. That's what it's for. When the early church fasted, It was often to 
experience the mind of God, to know and perceive and discern the will of God. You fast, you are drawn closer to God, and as you are drawn closer to God, the Spirit of God changes your mind, changes your will, changes your passions, so that you're now in congruence to the, the mind and the will and the passions of God. Listen, you don't fast in order to manipulate God. I'm going to go 40 days without food, and this will finally move God to do what I've been asking him to do. That's not a biblical fast. You fast in order to bring your heart in alignment with God's. And by the way, they just read in chapter 8 the first five books of the Bible. The book of the law of Moses. And nowhere, listen, this is interesting, nowhere in there is the word fasting. Instead, you've got phrases that mean fasting that go like this. Three of them, afflict yourself, that means to fast. Humble yourself was a word for fasting, a phrase for fasting. Deny yourself is a phrase for fasting. So while you won't read Genesis through Deuteronomy about fasting, you read all about it in those terms. You see, fasting was meant to drive the worshiper to humility and dependence on God. Well, Pastor Tim, I'm not sure if I see that in the Bible. Let me show you where it says it. Psalm 69. When I wept and humbled my soul with what? Do you see what fasting does? Fasting produces humility, a passion, and a dependency on God. This is why we ought to fast. This is why we ought to recover the discipline of periodic or regular fasting. It moves you to a greater degree to love your God. But the people fasted and they also dressed in sackcloth. Sackcloth was a heavy Material, very coarse, very dark. It was made from a black goat's hair. It was meant to bring the heat of the sun. It was meant to produce sweat. It was meant to itch. It was laid upon your skin. You didn't dress in sackcloth over a tunic. You put it right directly on your skin because it was meant, again, in an outward way, a physical way, to produce an inward response. It was meant to produce anguish over sin. See, now listen, we don't, we don't really do this very well in modern Christianity. We don't have ways to bring us into inward realities. Fasting was one of them. Sackcloth is another. It's a way to move your heart where it needs to be with God. And so while fasting produces humility... Sackcloth produces the pain of inner anguish. It produces a sorrow for sin, a growing desire to be rid of it, to repent. And the people, look what it says thirdly, the people took earth and put it on their heads. Now that's bizarre. We don't do that. See, dust, dust was considered cursed. Listen, if the ground turned to dust... That meant that God afflicted the ground by withholding rain because of the unfaithfulness of his people. 
And so dust or ashes in some parts of scripture, they were considered cursed. And by putting it on your heads, by putting it on your minds, what you're doing is you're driving into your heart the reality that because of their sins, God was judging them. God was dealing with them. In fact, if you go in your Bibles to verse 36, let's do that together. Look at the inward reality that this was producing. Behold, we are slaves this day. This is Nehemiah 9.36. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. You see, this is why they put earth on their heads. It was to drive into their hearts the truth. And the truth is, they're in this situation. They're in this plight because of their unfaithfulness. So let's pause for just a second. Let's put your minds in gear. Remember, it doesn't do you any good to come into a sermon or worship with your mind in park or neutral. You're not going to leave any differently than you came. You've got to interact with the text. And you don't interact, and listen, this is important, you don't interact with the text by elbowing the person next to you or, th- or saying, oh, thank God that person's here today. They really need to hear this. You interact with the text by saying, okay, I'm up against the wall and the spotlight of the word of God is shining on me. What's it illuminating? I'm walking through the fields of scripture and my feet just trip wired. It just hit a trip wire and it's starting to tremble. It's starting to, that's God. That's a flag. That's God saying, hey, you've got to notice this. I'm trying to illuminate this. I'm trying to show you something that needs to change in your life. Do you drive your heart into humility? You see, sackcloth, fasting, and earth on your heads were all ways that you can make your own heart humble. Well, Tim, I never really thought of that before, you might be saying. I thought humbleness was something that God had to do in me. It is by His grace, but it's while you respond to His grace. We can bring humility to our hearts. We can bring discomfort to our souls. Instead of pleading with God as a way out of our plight, maybe sit in your plight like Job and his friends and say, God, what are you saying to me? Do surgery on me. Don't let me try to find the American shortcut out of this trial. Let me trust that you'll bring me out of the trial when the trial's done its work. I'll learn to trust like a child with its mother, a weaned child with its mom. Psalm 131. See, that's how you bring humility to your hearts. Sometimes you should go. Sometimes I should go without food so that when those hunger pangs come, they will remind us, I've got to move towards God. I've got to relish God. I've got to desire God more, the bread of heaven. He is the only one that could bring nourishment to my soul. Listen, those hunger pangs of the soul, they often happen below the waterline and they come out in anger and frustration and depression and sadness. That's the hunger pangs of the soul. We just don't recognize them very often. Fasting brings recognition, brings your movement to the dinner table of God, feasting richly on Jesus Christ through His Word. 
We've got to be humble before we learn to pray deeply with our God. And humility is something that God says, I will graciously help you bring it to your hearts. But number two, our hearts need to be made clean through confession. Remember what we're learning? We're learning how do you prepare your heart to pray? You just don't barge into God's throne room and blurt out all of your requests. You've got to prepare. I've got to prepare my heart. Our hearts need to be made clean through confession. Look what it says, verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. You see, the word separated is very interesting. It means to divide, detach, and distinguish, right? That's the way we normally consider it, but it means more than that. And I want you to hear this because this is really important. It means to pull away from something or someone, listen, so that you move towards someone or something. You pull away so that you can move. You pull away so that you can draw closer. You separate, you distinguish from sin so that you can dedicate yourself more fully in your relationship with God. That's the word separation in the scripture. It's not just pull away. Listen, that's legalism. That's moralism. Don't drink, don't smoke, and don't date girls who do. That's what I heard when I was a kid. Right? That's separation. That's legalism. There's no grace. There's no movement to the one that your heart really is hungering for because your heart is in sackcloth and your head and your mind are in ashes and your body is in fasting. You're producing humility and it's moving you away from sin but moving you toward the God of grace. That's part of separation. That's what it means to separate. And when God begins to revive us, we're going to pull away from that which dampens our love for Him, and we're going to move toward that which will increase it. This is why you ought to be, friends, experiencing less of a desire to be playing golf on Sunday mornings or hitting the bars on Saturday evenings And getting to church where there are people like you who want to worship God. If you're not experiencing that in greater degree, you might want to start praying through that and wondering why. You separate, we're going to see from foreigners, people in the world, the world's ways. You separate in order to cling. You pull away in order to move toward. That's what it means. That ought to be what's happening In all of our lives, Psalm 66, if I had cherished iniquity, sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You see, separation before you pray is important because if you pray to God, cherishing sin, holding on to it, loving it, unwilling to let go of it, and you get into the throne room of mercy, God's going to put his fingers in his ears. He said, I'm not listening. I'm not going to listen. They separated from foreigners. Now listen, that doesn't mean in our modern church age to separate from people of a different ethnicity, from a different nation. It means you separate from the world. He who will be wise will be with the wise, Proverbs says. But a companion of fools will suffer harm. That's a promise. You begin to pull away in your close fellowship. You begin to separate in your business uh, fellowship. If you're in business with an unbeliever, you're in violation of the word of God. You separate and you bring dedication to God. 
If you're married to an unbeliever, then your entire life is one of evangelism. Your entire life, 1 Peter 3, is to be fragrant to that person, that the Christ would be fragrant through you to that person, that you would pray and get people to pray for your spouse, that that person would come to know Jesus Christ. It means you separate from the ways of the world and you move towards the ways of wisdom, the ways of Christ. And notice what it says. It's separate from foreigners. Why? Because this was a time for the believers alone. This is for the people of God. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, Peter says. But the word of God had shown them. They've been virtually indistinguishable from the people around them. Now listen, let's pause there again. Because maybe, maybe a flag just popped up in your own heart. Is there really any difference between you and the unsaved people in your life? Your speech, your faith, your conduct, your works, what you give your money to, what you make purchases of, what your hobbies are. Is there anything that's distinguishing you? Separate, remember? Be distinguished from the foreigners, from the people in the world, and move in holiness to God. Is there distinguishable marks in your life so that an unbeliever can say, you know, you're different. There's something different about you. And they ask, why? This is why God made his people holy. Look at what... Peter says, you're a chosen race, church. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are gods. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Therefore, this is how you live. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. You're among them. This isn't separation to to do what somebody in our church did two years ago, moved up into a community up in central New York, just around Christians. That's not the, that's not the trajectory of the gospel. We tried to warn them. He says, no, I just want to live in a, in a camp of Christians. Well, then who's going to declare the excellencies of Christ to the world? You're among the Gentiles, but you're honorable in your conduct so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Listen, we're to live among the people of the world distinct so that our lives are in a conduct that brings God glory. But this is not what the people of God had done in Nehemiah 9. And this is the grief that the word of God was producing. They realized they were not distinguishable from the foreigners all around them. They were no different. And so look what they did. Prepare to be shocked. Can you imagine this? They stood and confessed their sins, not in the counselor's room. Not on a couch. Right there in the public assembly, they stood and confessed their sins. Notice the word and, two categories of sins, their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. What's it mean to confess? Listen, if we're going to learn to make our hearts pure before we walk into the throne room of mercy, we got to know what it means to confess. It means two things, and there's two sides of it, and God always speaks in a double-edged sword. It means to 
to agree with God. God's saying, listen, look at what's in your heart. And you see it finally through the power of the word of God. And his anesthesia of grace is flowing in your life to be able to enable you to hear it. God, I see it. I agree. This is not pleasing to you. It's got to get out of my life. And here comes the other side of confession. Therefore, you throw it. You cast it onto the mercy of God. That's what confession means. It means to agree and cast. It means to acknowledge and get rid it means in the power of the grace of God, you rear back your spiritual arm and you throw that sin onto God because it's detestable to you. You want to throw it through the dung gate that we that we studied down into the valley of Hinnom so that it burns and never comes back. You lock the bars. You close the gate. You're done with that sin by the grace and mercy of God. Confession is the right response when God shows us that we've sinned. Listen, if you sit in a lotus style with your fingers doing the loop and you're looking inward, inward, inward every day of your life and all you see is your own heart, you're going to start seeing sins probably where there aren't sins to be seen. It's not transcendental meditation. It's not contemplation of yourself. It's contemplation of God that illuminates sin. You want to see your sin, then look at the perfections of God through his word. You look at that mirror, you take the mirror of God's word. God is holy. God is perfect. God really doesn't like when I lie. Because God never lies. And all of a sudden, God takes the mirror of the word of God and shows you, but you do. Oh, Lord, I do. I don't want to. Well, then confess. Acknowledge God, I'm a liar. I'm not just a liar generally. Here's how I have lied. And I'm going to rear back my hand. I'm going to throw it on you. And God, beg you, take it out of my heart. Let your grace and your mercy scour me clean. He says, I will. I've been waiting for you to do this. And now the transforming work of God is coming. See, that's how you prepare your heart. You stand and you confess your sins. Listen, what would it be like if I had open mic time Sunday morning, right at the end of the service, I said, who wants to come down and confess their sins? That's what they did. Or what if God supernaturally gave to me a thumb drive? And I looked at Chris Bougie and I said, Chris, put it in. I don't know what's on it. And all of a sudden, on the projector behind me, it's my... Last week, first person, my eyes, what I looked at, and my mouth and what I spoke for all of you to see. I don't think I'd stay here very long. <laughs> that door right there, that's the back door. I'd be fleeing. I'm a sinner. But we've got to confess. And sometimes you've got to stand up and you've got to say to people, listen, I am a sinner and I need help. I had somebody this morning. Take me aside. Pastor Tim, you need to know what's going on in my life. Confess sin to me. That's what you do. If you want sin out of your life, you've got to get it out of the darkness and into the light. That's always 1 John 1's prescription. It's powerful when it stays in the shadow. It needs to come out and it needs to get into the light. And when people confess their sins to us, we've got to give grace back to them. Not permission, not softness, not liberal license to continue in the sin. You give them grace. And somebody defined grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. Listen, Christ had to die for that sin. 
You put him on the cross. That was poured on his head. He drank it to the last drop. That caused utter agony. The only time that he cried out on the cross, it wasn't when the nails went through his wrists. It was when God poured sin, our sins on his head. But he did it willingly. If you throw your sin on him, he's going to say, I've been waiting to take it. Now let's transform your life. And let's bring the change that's necessary. But I want you to notice one more thing. Notice the order they confess their sins before they confess the sins of their fathers. It's easy to get judgmental. Think of your, your own earthly father for a minute. Right? Let's all do it. You know, somewhere on the continuum of one to ten, he was either a deadbeat dad or the best dad in the world. Where does your father fall on that continuum? It's easy to say, my dad was terrible. And you know, I'm struggling too. That's the wrong order. You acknowledge your own sin. I acknowledge my own sin. And then I confess the sins of my father. You know why I confess the sins of my father? Listen, if I want my life to go on a different trajectory than his, then I better start learning to confess him because it's in confessing that God says, good, now I'm going to take you to grace so that you don't repeat what your father did. You confess the sins of your father so that your descendants after you can go in a way that is towards grace, a way that is towards holiness, a way that is towards faith. And maybe it wasn't seen in your earthly father or your grandfather or even the lines before, but grace can always inter, inter, interject and put a new trajectory on that line of descent. So you confess the sins of your father. Look at number three, though. I got to pick up the pace. You guys are definitely not listening fast enough. Our hearts, our hearts need to be girded with God's word. Verse three. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Now let me explain this. The Jews had two 12 hour periods of their day. Day was 12 hours. Night was considered 12 hours. 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. was day. 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. was night. A quarter of the day is three hours. So they spent three hours reading the book of the law. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Three hours of reading God's word, three hours of confessing and worship. If our hearts are going to be made ready to pray, listen, I think this might be the most important thing I'm telling you. If our hearts are going to be made ready to pray, then they've got to, our hearts have got to follow the studying of God's word. It is God's word that prepares us to pray. Listen to this from George Mueller, that unbelievable man of faith. It is as plain to me as anything that the first thing the child of God has to do morning by morning. Listen, every morning he says, well, Tim, I'm not a morning person. You can make yourself be a morning person. It's called self-discipline. Morning by morning. Why would you go throughout your day not eating? Your body would revolt. Our souls do the same thing. We just don't see it. 
You feed your soul in the morning, he's saying. It's to obtain food for my inner man. What is the food for the inner man? It's not prayer, he says. It's the word of God. And here again, it's not the simple reading of the word of God so that it only passes through our minds just as water passes through a pipe. But considering what we read, pondering over it, applying it to our hearts. And when we pray, we speak to God. And when prayer is going to be most effective, it will be after the inner man has been nourished by meditation on the word of God, where we find our father speaking to us to encourage us, to comfort us, to instruct us, to humble us, to reprove us. Listen, if you want your heart made ready to walk into the throne room of grace and speak to God, the word of God has got to inundate our minds. It's got to flood our hearts. And the point of scripture, listen, it's not informational. The scripture's goal is transformation. Now, let me ask a question. Let's be super, super honest. How many of you would say your prayer life is dull, boring, and ineffective and difficult? Raise your hand if that's you. Come on, be honest. That's a lot of us. If you struggle with praying, if you're not sure what to pray, you feel maybe it's pointless, then read the word of God as you, and as you read and something flags in your mind, you pause and you stop and you pray through it. Listen, the goal of scripture is not to read your chapter of the day and check it off. Your goal of scripture reading is transformation. So if you're reading verse one and all of a sudden, oh my goodness, Lord, I don't do this. And he brings that prick of conscience. By the way, that's preparation for surgery. And if he brings that prick of, con- of, of conscience and you flee the operating room, then likely he'll bring a circumstance to bear so that it forces you to the operating room because he's relentless. He's going to conform you. He's going to transform you. He's going to have his way with you. You've got to allow him and trust the great physician. He'll never cut more deeply than is necessary. And he's the best anesthesiologist in the entire universe. He's going to bring grace. So the point of scripture is transformation. You might read about how God was gracious to somebody in scripture. What should we do? We should stop. And we should start reviewing how God's grace has been in your own life. Just stop. You don't need to read a lot of scripture. What you need is to read the scripture that's going to transform your life. Stop and think, Lord, you've been gracious to me. And recount, as the psalmist says, all the ways that his love has shown, been shown to you. And do what the psalmist says, sing a new song. You sing a new song because God's constantly doing new acts of grace. You see, the goal of Scripture is not to get through a body material. It's to get the body material through your heart and begin to transform and conform us to his will, his passions, and his thinking. But fourth, our hearts should be passionate for God's attention. Look at verse 4. On the stairs of the Levites stood those eight priests. I'm only saying that because I really don't know how to pronounce half of them. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Friends, when's the last time that you cried in a loud voice to God? Honestly. Why do we do that? Why are we to cry to a loud voice? Why are we, as a psalm saying, shouting to the Lord? 
Is he hard of hearing? Is he easily distracted? Certainly not. Do we shout and cry out with a loud voice to get his attention? Are we like the prophets of Baal who cut themselves and danced and chanted to get their God to act? That's not the way it works in Christianity. That's not the way Christians need to, to work with God, to, to worship God. You cry out with a loud voice to invite God to hear. It's invitational. You're inviting God to give all of his attention to you. You're inviting God to open his ears to your prayers. Open his eyes to your plight. You cry out with a loud voice because you're not satisfied with anything less than God's entire attention. Sometimes prayer is difficult. Friends, there are times that I... I go to pray either something about in my own life or something for somebody else. And honestly, I just don't know the words to to say. I don't know what to pray. That's when the Spirit intercedes for us with grumblings and groanings because He knows it's too deep. It's too deep. It's so full of pain. We don't know how to enunciate the words. No words can get to that level of pain or grief. So the Spirit of God takes over. But sometimes praying is difficult because... Not the depth of what we're feeling, it's the shame. You get like Adam and Eve who hear God approaching through the garden. What do they do? They slap fig leaves on and they hide behind trees. They don't want to come out to God's penetrating, searching gaze. Listen, you go into prayer, you're in the throne room of grace. That's why you want to get out of your heart what's not pleasing to him because he's going to see it immediately. His eyes can sear through that. Hebrews says we're naked. We're naked before God. There is no clothing over your soul. He sees it all clearly. But you know what they're doing in verse 4, in verse 3, in verse 2? They're taking off the fig leaves. They're coming out from behind the trees. And they know they're naked. They know they don't look very good. They know they're hideously deformed spiritually. But they know they're God. And they know His mercy. And they know His grace who takes deformed sinners like us and begins to reshape us. It begins to apply His grace to us. and begins to say, listen, I love you as you are, not when you clean up your act. I love you as you are and I'm going to help you clean up your act. Because you're not going to clean up your act without my help. And they cry out, the Levites, look at what it says, to the Lord their God. Can I translate that a little bit for you? To Yahweh their Elohim. Let me translate it one more layer down. Ready? To Yahweh their covenantal, faithful, promise-keeping God who gave to his people alone. He didn't give his personal name of Yahweh to any other nation. He gave it only to Israel. He gave it only to his people. He says, listen, this is my password into the riches that I've got. You want my riches? Then you come to me as Yahweh. And I'm going to be faithful to you in the promises I made to Abraham. They're still in effect for you today. And church, they're still in effect for us today. That's why Ephesians 1 can say that those in Christ have the riches of Christ. 
Christ is the Yahweh term of the New Testament. It's the name above all names. Listen, you bring yourself to Christ. You pray through Christ and into the heavenly throne. And God's riches of spiritual longing are satisfied. God's riches of prosperity, not materially, but spiritually, are going to be yours. That's the way it works. You cry out to Yahweh, and then you cry out to Elohim, which is the name for the powerful King of Kings, the mighty God, the sovereign ruler of the universe. It is Yahweh, covenantal, faithful God, and Elohim, sovereign, mighty King of Kings. He's got the power to fulfill his promises. Listen, do you know that? There's a lot of Christians I know that know that God's got the power, but they don't really know if he's going to fulfill it, his promises. He's good. Or that rather, he's omnipotent, but I'm not sure he's good. Well, that's Elohim without Yahweh, and they don't get torn apart in Nehemiah 9. If you've got a powerful God that's not good, you've got a Hitler of the universe. It is promise-keeping God and sovereign God. That's what bolsters faith. And you get to the first part of verse 5. Then the Levites said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting, and it's our fifth way you prepare your heart to pray. Our hearts should be blessing God in worship. Do you go into prayer blessing God? Well, I don't know if we even know what it means to bless God. What's it mean? What's it mean to bless God? Well, in the New Testament, listen, this is so fascinating to me. In the New Testament, the word bless is the Greek word eulogeo which we get eulogy. You go to a funeral, which I just did a week and a half ago. You get to a funeral and they, somebody speaks a eulogy. They're speaking good of the person. A eulogy is a good word about the person who has died. To bless God, then, is to say a good word about him. It's to acknowledge the characteristics and the attributes of God. It's to acknowledge his sovereignty, to acknowledge his grace, to give him credit for his mercy, to see his love, to see his undying faithfulness. You acknowledge that. You walk into the throne room of grace, lifting God up in eulogy, going, God, I've got a good word for your name. You are an amazing God. That's how you walk into the throne room of mercy. A heart that's made ready to pray is a heart that's ready to speak well of God, acknowledging his perfections. Now, you don't pray to get God's favor. Listen, this is a a misconception. You don't pray to get God's favor. His favor is already given to you through Christ, believer. You're not going to pray and increase his favor. It's all fully given to you through Christ. There's nothing that God's holding in reserve. He's not saying, I'll give you 70% of my favor through Christ, and I'll give you 30% when you start learning to pray. That's not the way God works. God's all or nothing. He gives you all of his favor, all of his riches, all of his kindness. They are ours to experience. We don't pray to get God to achieve our goals. We're going to see that as we study chapter 9. You're not praying. If I pray, God will give me what I want. Kind of like the Coke machine or the vending machine God. Put your token of prayer in and out comes your desire. That's not the way it works. The prayer does not change God, but it changes the one who offers it. That's what Soren Kierkegaard, who had terrible theology, he at least got that right. 
Prayer does not change God. God is immutable, meaning he does not change. His mind is set because it's perfect. If God could change his mind, that means he originally had his mind set on the wrong thing. And God cannot do that. You don't pray to change God's mind. You pray to change yours. You don't pray to change God's will. You pray to bring your will into alignment with his and your passions into alignment with his. The power of prayer is transformational on the people of God. But listen, as I sum this up in closing, it's transformational when we humble our hearts before him. It's transformational when we scour our hearts clean Through confession. It's transformational when we gird our minds with his truth. It's transformational when we move our our passions to God in adoration to get his attention. We cry out for his attention. And it's transformational when we direct our blessings to him in worship. That's Nehemiah 1 through 5. How do you prepare your heart to worship or to pray? It's going to be the longest prayer in the Old Testament. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. It's freeing. It's how we ought to learn to pray, but you've got to learn to prepare your heart first. So what do you do with this sermon? If you want it to change your life, which I hope you do, if I want it to change my life, then it immediately has to be applied. Would you do this tonight? Would you run through these five things tonight? Humble yourself. I started doing this this morning. Humble your heart. Listen, the fact that you have to sleep tonight shows you your finite power. It has an end. And God never sleeps or slumbers, Psalm 139. He has no end to his power. It's inexhaustible. The fact that we sleep and he doesn't create spatial distance between our great God and us. We need him. And he is faithful to hold his promises. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Nehemiah. Lord, thank you for what we're learning. Lord, I pray that all of us would apply this. Lord, let us become a praying people of God that know how to humble our hearts, know how to clean our hearts through the blood of Christ, through confession, know how to gird our minds with truth, know how to call out passionately for your attention, and know how to bless you with the eulogies, speaking well of you, of recognizing your attributes. God, you are amazing. You are amazing. Teach us to pray. And it's in your name we ask, Jesus. Amen.